Welcome to the GovComs podcast, bringing you the latest insights and innovations from experts and thought leaders around the globe in government communication. Now, here is your host, David Pembroke. Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome once again to GovComs, the podcast that examines the practice of content communication in government and the public sector. My name's David Pembroke. Thank you for joining me once again. Today, we speak to Kylie Walker, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Australian Academy of Technology and Engineering, where she has a mandate to lead crucial national conversations and strategy towards building a thriving, healthy and connected Australia supported through technology. She specialises in bringing together technologists, engineers and scientists with governments, business media and society with the skills that she's built over many years in senior federal communication and advocacy roles in science, technology and the health sector. As the immediate past CEO of Science and Technology Australia, Kylie led campaigns to increase investment in Australian research and development and created the acclaimed Superstars of STEM program, which in fact Content Group has supported uh, over a number of years, also championing Australian women in science, technology, engineering and mathematics. Kylie is also the chair of the Australian National Commission for UNESCO and a visiting fellow at the Australian National Centre for the Public Awareness of Science. In 2019, she was named in the 100 Women of Influence list by the Australian Financial Review for the work that she's done in improving equity, diversity, and inclusion in STEM. And she joins me in the content group studio. Kylie, welcome to GovComs. Thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So, Comms, how is your sort of world re- reacting and responding to um, and your communication style, given the challenges of COVID and the acceleration of technology and, and everything else, what's what's happening with, you, with, with your life? There has never been a more important time for evidence and truth to be um, included in the conversations, the public conversations and the decision maker conversations around how we respond to the multiple crises that we're facing, not just as a nation, obviously, but as a globe. Um, so it is a huge challenge, but it's also an enormous opportunity because all of a sudden we have, uh, for the first time in many years in Australia, a cabinet that is asking the learned academies, there are five of us, but asking the learned academies for that rapid expert advice in order to inform their very, very quick, but very, very important decision making in responding to the COVID crisis. So it's a really exciting time actually to have stepped in as the CEO of the Academy of Technology and Engineering. My tenure started at the end of January. So it's been a bit right. of a roller coaster year. Okay, but that's a that's a fascinating um, insight that I'd really like to explore with you. Given that is such a key stakeholder group, you know, national cabinet, the federal cabinet. This is where decisions are made. So, can you describe how that interact? interaction takes place and how are you able to provide information quickly to them to enable 
evidence-based decision-making? So traditionally, uh, the learned academies have had a relationship uh, with the federal government uh, and we have been mandated and, and in fact, supported uh, by a, a particular grant mechanism to provide that expert advice. But it's been deeper and longer term. So we're, right. t- we're talking about, you know, those, those big reports, big roadmaps, 10-year plans, et cetera, that are drawing on all of those experts. Yeah, the, across big, all- the, the big issues, the big wicked problems that are going to take time to unpack. Yeah. Yeah, indeed. And, and, you know, deep and lengthy and thoughtful con- uh, consultation and, you know, bringing it together with expert working groups and then pr- providing roadmaps to government, to policymakers and decision makers. What's changed this year is that with the help of the chief scientist, Alan Finkel, um, we as a group of academies, of the five learned academies, have called on those expert networks to provide very quick turnaround Um it's new for us. It's it's around sort of between one week and two weeks um, turnaround on very pointed questions. And the idea is not to provide recommendations there, but to say here is the best available evidence. Mm-hmm. We've called on our networks of the top experts in Australia and often in the world mm. um, to from multiple perspectives and disciplines from across sectors. So they're not just academic experts, but they're also experts in the public sphere and the private sphere. Um, to provide that very quick but very robust evidence um, mm-hmm. to those decision makers. Could you give me an example of, of, of a question that you've been asked and had to respond to? Sure. Um, so the groups responded to many, many questions. ATSI in particular, the Academy of Technology and Engineering, has um, responded to two very important but perhaps less pointed questions around what's the effect of the COVID pandemic on women in STEM uh, firstly, and the second question that we uh, led the response to, these all they're all group efforts, but different academies lead different responses. Mm. The second question was, what has been the effect or what can we anticipate the effect will be on Australia's research workforce? So that's where we identified that, you know, 21,000 people are coming out of the university sector, we estimate, um, looking at about six to 7,000 of those from research. So not necessarily just STEM, but across research. And that's a huge loss of... Um, of skills and capacity and investment because it obviously costs a lot of money for society to train people up to to that level of expertise. And if they're coming out of the research sector, where are they going? Are they finding jobs in the public sector, in the private sector, or are they out of work for a while? Um, So those are the questions that we've answered. But the the group in, uh, in the large has answered questions like, can you detect COVID in the surge system? So can you can you use a, a, that as a different mechanism to identify potential hotspots? Um, how long does the virus live on different surfaces? So are there, you know, materials like copper, for example, that you could use for uh, high traffic areas like doorknobs um, where the virus won't survive and you won't have to clean quite as frequently? Um, questions about readiness for vaccine rollout, um, agile manufacturing, all kinds of things, but all around the COVID mm. crisis. Now, we see that as something that, that we can and ought to build on going forward and have as a regular yeah. part of the, the way in which we provide advice to, to government. And do you suspect that it will be sustained? Look, it, there is a strong appetite for it yeah. from the government, from uh, not just uh, Cabinet, but from departments as well. And, and there's also been a strong appetite um, from mm. our perspective, from the Academy's perspective, to be able we to are play really that role. Keen. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, in terms of just going back to that question that you were uh, answer or called upon to answer, how do you model something like that when you know that the numbers are, you know, twenty one thousand out? Um, how many did you say from research? Was it nine thousand? Six uh, to seven. So, okay, six to seven thousand out of research. How do you model impacts of that sort of 
work? It's a very good question. It's really <laughs> tricky, and particularly in such a short turnaround time. Oh, I right? bet. Um, so it, those two questions were probably a little bit different from the other ones that have been answered through this process in that there wasn't already established evidence and published papers, yeah. um, and that was, you know, the standard for, for this rapid research information forum um, has been that it has to be published, it has to be contested, and it has to have been tested and peer-reviewed. Unfortunately, when we're looking at what the impacts might be economically, really, um, on, on a STEM workforce, yeah. it's happening in real time. There yeah. had been at that point no research. There has actually been subsequently some research on those two questions and um, unfortunately our predictions have come to bear. And I say unfortunately particularly with regards to the loss of diversity in the STEM workforce right. because what we found um, through that very quick but very broad consultation with leadership across the sector for the women in STEM uh, paper was that the pandemic was likely to negatively impact on women in STEM uh, to a much more severe extent than it will have and indeed now has impacted on men in STEM yeah. um, for many reasons, partly because um, women are overrepresented at junior levels in yeah. STEM and underrepresented at senior levels. They are overrepresented in the casualised workforce um, and in the part-time workforce and in the short-term contract workforce in STEM. So, you know, the, the logical conclusion is that those people, and not just in STEM and not just in research, obviously across the economy, those mm. people are the ones who are most at risk or whose jobs are, are the most at risk when things start turning south. But how do we evolve then the economy in such a way that, okay, there's not going to be the opportunity in that research as part of higher education, but where can those people land that they can make an important contribution? It may not be that contribution, but where can they make that contribution? Excellent question. There are so many places for them to go. Good. <laughs> so there, there has been an assumption. So you know what happens when you know something really, really well and then you teach that thing to another person? Yep. What you do is you teach your assumptions as well as your knowledge. Um, and that's certainly also true for academia. If you have made a career as an academic and you're teaching people who are doing PhDs, it's easy to assume that the career trajectory for them, their natural place will be in academia. Yep. Now, we know that most people who do PhDs don't actually end up as academics. Yep. Um, nevertheless, that cultural assumption persists. And so what we've, we've got a few really great ideas. We're not the only people, obviously. Lots of people, uh, lots of organisations have been um, creating mechanisms to find excellent and worthwhile and really important jobs for people with high-level STEM qualifications outside of academia. Some of them will be in R&D. Absolutely. Um, and there are big companies that are doing R&D themselves. There are lots of SMEs that are collaborating with academia or with public research agencies to do R&D as well. So some of them will continue to be researchers, um, albeit not in academia. But many of them will actually go out and do other jobs. They will become entrepreneurs. They will become managers. They'll become uh, project initiators. They, they will they'll bring their innovation skills and their uh, critical thinking skills and their project management skills because you've mm. got to be a pretty good project mm. manager to be a researcher. They'll bring those skills into other parts of the economy and they'll bring that innovation mindset to other parts of the economy. So it's not necessarily a loss. In fact, I think it is a hugely important part of a thriving innovation economy. And it's something that Australia is still a little bit young and naive on. We're, we're doing pretty well. We're having a pretty good go at it. But there are some nations around the world that have been doing this in a much more deliberate way for much longer. Yeah. And um, we've got a bit to learn from them. Part of that will be around the um, porosity between academia yep. and the private sector. Yep. So 
yes, we've got a flow of researchers out of academia into the private sector. What we don't do too well is getting those people back into academia mm. or getting different people from the private sector into academia to build those relationships, to enhance that understanding, to break down those language and culture barriers between mm. the two sectors and to really start to unlock our true potential to be an innovation nation. And we've got a lot of potential. Mm. Now, what I well, I would really like to, and maybe we can come back and have this conversation another time, because I think higher education and what's happening in higher education and what technology is doing to higher education and what COVID has done to higher education in terms of structures and delivery to people. But that's a that's a sort of a big topic that would, you know, might dominate our conversation. But what I'm keen to talk about really uh, today or to focus on today is around communication and how do we communicate effectively and how do we communicate with influence? Now, someone in your position has to be very strategic, very thoughtful, very careful, and you run at a level where you have, you've got to try to convince a lot of people to support you at different times. Uh, working up into cabinet, um, as you say, mentioning the chief scientists, senior bureaucrats. What's your best advice to people about influence and how is the best way to get people, you know, to see the light, to see what you're, you know, what's the best way to work with people to, to get your message across? There are a few different factors to it. Um, firstly, everybody's a person, and yep. I, I always have that in my mind, right? No matter what. Most people are people. Yeah, they are. They have a, I mean, that sounds silly, right? But no matter what your title no, is, you are yeah. also a human being. Yeah. And so being daunted by titles doesn't help. Yeah. Um, and I do try, it's something that I learned being a journalist, actually. My first 10 years um, was as a journalist. And, you know, I had the, the good fortune and the good times to interview lots of different people in lots of different positions of powers from power from all walks of life and, you know, Hollywood stars and prime ministers and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, and it, what it does is it, it, it kind of inures you to the title over time. Um, and that's really, really helpful because yeah. um, if you walk in daunted and deferential, then you don't actually get to communicate with influence. You've got to have a connection one-on-one -on -one with the person that you're sitting down with. Yeah. That's first. Um Trust is also really Sorry, important. just before we yeah. leave that one, how hard is that though? And, and again, I was a journalist as well and yeah. I get that because, again, yeah. you have that responsibility where you do have to speak to people one-to-one -one because that's the role that you have. But if you haven't been a journalist, if you haven't had that training and experience, how do you train yourself up, particularly if you've been in working in something like a bureaucracy where it's hierarchical, the secretary's at the top, the depth secs are there, you know, and it's very structured as it goes. And you may be, you know, not up there and not used to being up there. So how, how do you get the confidence to, to sort of see them as just a person? Practice, actually, and, and being very conscious about it. Um, you can be respectful and polite without being deferential. Um, and, and I think that's a really key distinction. So you can walk in and say, how are you? How was your day? Gee, it's, you know, it's okay weather today, but it was better yesterday. And aren't the flowers beautiful? It's such a lovely time of year. Just to put a little bit of personality yeah. into your interaction before you get down to business. Yeah. And indeed, it's, it's one of those other, it's really finding one thing also that they may be interested in where you can have a, a what about the, you know, if they follow a particular football team, for example, and you know what the score was of their team over the weekend, and they may, and you'll know you'll always get a reaction out of them because they 
they they are engaged in whatever it is, whether it's football or arts or sport or movies or whatever. Oh, totally. You should definitely do your research, but, but find the thing where there is genuine connection because otherwise it looks a little bit too contrived. Yeah. Like people can sniff that out. Um, so if you, I know nothing about footy. I'm never yeah. going to have a conversation yeah, about okay. football, right? Um, but but if you but are, you can find find a mutuality. Yeah, somewhere. absolutely. Yeah. And look, that one of the the delightful things about working in the sector that I work in is that I come across really exciting, amazing, inspiring stories all of the time. Yeah. And that's that in itself can be a point of connection. Yeah. So, you know, if everyone's a human being, everyone knows someone who's had cancer, for example. So you can talk about um, if you know that there's a bit of a backstory there and it's not too raw, you can talk about some of the amazing breakthroughs that yep. are possible or are in the works for cancer research. Yeah. Um, you could talk about equally about if people have a, a, um, a bent for technology or gaming. You know, there are lots of different places where you can find a connection and still talk about the stuff that you're there to talk about. Yeah. Um, and, and that kind of brings me to the next point, which is about building trust. So that, that requires consistency. It requires authenticity. Um, and it requires really knowing your stuff and knowing that when you walk into a room, you're not there to uh, necessarily get something, grab everything that you can and walk out with the loot, yeah. um, you bring something to the table as well as perhaps asking for something in return. Yeah. Um, and you do that consistently over time. It takes time and it takes a, a consistent investment in the relationship before you can uh, expect that trust. It's not something that you can expect just because of your title or because of the organisation you work for. Um, it also comes to the point of evidence. So do your homework, not just about the person who you're speaking with um, and seeking to influence, but know your stuff really well. Know that it is, particularly when in, in a position like mine, working for the Academy of Technology and Engineering, I'm speaking on behalf of people who are deep experts in their field. I can't go in there and gloss it over and, and kind of do it on the smell of an oily rag and pretend that I you know, can't just kind of fudge the figures. Yep. I need to know that what I'm saying... And, and the people I'm speaking with need to know that what I'm saying is based on the expertise of my fellows. I'm a cipher for the fellows in that sense. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I can't make it up as I go along. Do you? No. No, I can't imagine that that, <laughs> that would end well. Do you, do you go to the point of understanding or trying to understand the ways that people like to receive information? Some might be... Uh, visual, you know, might like their content visually. Some might like, you know, give me all the details because I'm going to read everything. You know, different people are different in the way that they consume information. Absolutely. And if you can do that, you should, but you don't always know that. You don't no. always have that information. And and so what you should also do is think about, you know, speaking that same information in five different languages and, and knowing that at least one of those languages is going to hit the, the sweet spot. Yep. Um, so you might bring along a visual aid. You might bring along a toy to play with. Um, you might communicate it verbally. You might also have a sheet of writing um, or a website that you can put someone to or, uh, you know, video resources to back it up. Um, and that's particularly true for public education campaigns, I think. Um, you have to assume that uh, different people have different ways of receiving information and absorbing information. And, um, yes, absolutely tailoring it to the individual where you you can do that is terrific, but you can't often do that. Mm. So finding multiple ways. The other thing um, that that old tenet is uh, of, you know, you don't start, people don't start hearing the message until you are almost vomiting mm. because you're so sick of <laughs> conveying the message. So just repetition and, and being prepared to be in it for the long haul when it's something that's really important and particularly when you're trying to influence a, a big 
range of people. So again, like a public education campaign. But it's also true if you're trying to influence governments to make big decisions that might be beneficial for the nation now or might be beneficial in 10 or 15 years' time. And they're on a very quick election cycle. So what's in it for them right now is obviously very important. But you can also convey the message around how they can be visionary, how they can be a leader for the future, how they can have a legacy, um, and then repeat it, and then repeat it, and then repeat it, Mm. because they're very busy people. We're all very busy people, but politicians, political leaders in particular, and their staffers are incredibly busy. The tugs on their time, the tugs on their attention are manifold Every single day. They never switch off. They never have the opportunity to have some downtime and, um, and and really kind of think through your particular thing in very great detail. So it's got to be lots of small digestible chunks over a long period of time. Um, if if your message is important enough to want to put that effort in and, and you can see the benefit in growing that outcome collaboratively with that particular decision maker. But- and I get that, and I and lots of different information over time. But do you hold that together with a sort of strategic oversight framework that may sort of runs for your organisation? So there's all lots of different stories at lots of different times, but they're working back towards a, a plan of some sort. Oh, absolutely! It might not be lots of different stories; it might be the same story yeah. over and over again. Mm. But yeah, of course, it's all through the lens of a strategic framework. So. Yeah. Um, you know, we have a mandate and a mission to help Australians understand and use technology for the benefit of society and the environment. That's a pretty big mandate. <laughs> There's a lot you can chuck is... in under that, <laughs> yeah. um, which is There's great. There's a few fine. stories in that. Yeah, we have some flexibility to play. <laughs> but but we've got within that, we've got some technology missions. And, um, you know, we what I want to do... Uh, in this role is look at some of the very deep thinking and long-term work that we've been doing around, um, for example, creating a technologically enabled health system for Australia or transportation system um, or the piece of work that we're doing at the moment on, um, on Australia's waste technology. Oh, wow. Um, and reducing or even eliminating waste is the goal. Yeah, wow. Um, but, or turning it into a resource, more to the point. Um, and then bringing all of those three things together and what are the lessons that we've learned across those three quite different sectors and how can that teach us uh, about where our possibilities might go for the whole of the economy, the whole of the society um, in becoming technologically enabled like to the, the maximum capacity available right now. And we're not even close. But it's interesting though, isn't it? That, that That's the lens though. You've just articulated a very nice lens that sort of it's, it's big enough but it's not so big that I'm just sort of looking at it going because, yeah. you know, your mission, as you say, is like right. en- endless whereas what you're is drawing that together to bring people's attention. Right. But what yeah. do you need? You don't just need the technology. You also no. need the legislative frameworks. Oh, you also the need the regulatory frameworks. That, yeah, you massive. also need the investment in the infrastructure. You also need the skilled workforce. You also need et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Yep. So all of the different elements of what we advocate for point in the same direction and have the same goal in mind. Yep. Massive changes in the way we communicate, you know, with, with di- digital technologies and this... Uh, you know, COVID period obviously has led to, you know, acceleration of trends that were largely in place, but really we've got a, a, a different um, reality now and unlikely to be changed in any time soon. What's your observation around those changes and what's your advice to people about how to communicate effectively in this sort of new reality? It takes a lot more effort to win a room 
when you're at the Zoom room <laughs> compared with <laughs> when it's an in-person <laughs> event. Um, it takes a lot more energy because you're not getting that um, that personal interaction. You're not getting the the feedback um, that I'm getting sitting across from you right That's now right. around yep. your body language mm. and your facial expressions and your kind of breathing and, and all of those sorts of um, almost subconscious cues that we take when we're interacting with each other, they are largely absent on Zoom and that is exhausting. So that's a negative, I think, to the way that we've done, uh, that we've pivoted to, to do business and have those conversations. But there are lots of positives as well. And um, some of the possibilities, I think, that have opened up in a, a massively accelerated way because of this pandemic have been around inclusivity for people with disability in particular, people who aren't able to travel, mm. people who may be uh, vulnerable uh, because they've got an immune system disorder or they're going through chemotherapy, for example. They can still participate um, and they can participate in a way that um, that doesn't exhaust them and doesn't expose them to additional vulnerability. Um, reaching into remote and regional schools and including uh, children who would otherwise never have had these opportunities in conversations and direct personal interactions with leaders and inspirational role models has been extraordinary. Um, there are, I think there's extreme... Uh, there are some of the downsides around uh, never switching off. Yep. Um, but on the flip side of that, it enables people to work the times uh, and that hours that suit them. And, yep. and you know, as a mother of three children, it's been um, it's been both incredibly intense to manage them at home for the time that they've been at home and try to do a full time new job at the same time. <laughs> um, but it's also meant that I can do some of that stuff out of hours, um, yeah. and I can have. Uh, I, I've. But did you get it? Don't you get exhausted though? Well, yeah, that's why you've got to know your boundaries and put some limits around it and have some personal time and some sort of reinvestment in yourself as mm. well. That's really, really important for mm. sure. Mm. But, um, you know, something that, that I've been meaning to do um, this year or had intended to do this year when I first stepped into the role was get around Australia and meet our 880 fellows. I clearly haven't done that, <laughs> but I bet I've met more of them yeah. virtually than I would have met if I'd got around in person and had lunchtime, you know, yeah. chats and seminars and what have you. So, yeah. it, you know, there are there's technology is not uh, there's no moral value on technology. Uh, it is morally neutral. It is um, in in a sense, it's also utility neutral until we come to it until it matches with human beings and it's how we use it and how we respond to it and the boundaries we put around it yep. um, that enable the possibilities and keep us safe as well. But in this new world then, what skills do we need to have to be to be better communicators? Now, obviously, you, you described the context there that, that you know there's the good and the bad, but how, how do I become really good in this, this, this new world? How, how, how do I become a super effective communicator in this new reality? I think it comes back to those using those different languages. Yep. So okay. um, think about how do you present um, when you're on a screen, make sure that you look professional even if you're sitting on your couch. Yep. Um, how do you follow up in writing and make sure that your uh, your email is not just more spam in someone's inbox, that it's actually, you know, to the point that it's useful, that it's got a next step. Um how do you use multimedia effectively to get your message across? So, um, you know, hyperlinking where, where necessary, but not unnecessarily so. I think people's um, attention span has 
dwindled again for individual pieces of information. So one of the things that I'm working with my staff on is how do we really shrink down those those gigantic reports which have a lot of good background information in and just present the tip of the iceberg. And then the people who've got more time and more will and more interest can go on their deep dives if they wish to. But mm -hmm. um, if I've got a 50-page report, I'm also going to have a two-page summary yep. because time-poor people are not going to be reading the 50-page report, even though it's very important to have that. Sure. Um, so but are you then going to sort of atomise that piece of content even further to a point of an infographic. the infographic yeah. and or the video a, or, or the audio exactly. or an interview or, exactly. you know? So using those multiple channels as yeah. much as possible and understanding that some people love podcasts while they're going for a walk or a run or in the car. Some people like to sit down and read a, a good chunky piece of report. Yeah. You know, and everything in between. Yeah, exactly. Mm. But with that, though, that brings a, a challenge of, you know, obviously there's that preparation that you're talking about, but then having the actual skills to be able to execute and to deliver. And obviously there are great platforms such as a Canva, for example, where you can pre-populate, you know, templates that are available that, you know, make your stuff look pretty good that doesn't cost you a lot of money. What are you doing in terms of your staff and the, the sort of makeup of your team and the skills within your team? How is that emerging and changing to, to help you to deliver on that very important and powerful mission? So we are investing in more digital skills, that's for sure. Um, we've got in-house graphic design. Um, we've got people who are both uh, communications strategists and people who are executors, you yep. know, the, the doing the doing. Um, and uh, in, in a sense, our, um, our program managers are also social media operatives as well. You know, we're teaching them and supporting them to get better at communicating directly um, to their audiences. So we have an uh, industry mentoring network in STEM, IMNIS program, which pairs up STEM PhD students with senior leaders in industry. Um, Maggie, who's extraordinarily capable, who runs that program, is also doing it social media. It's her program. She's passionate about it. She knows all of the stories, all of the people. Mm. So the communication she's doing is authentic. It's not being handed over to someone else who then has to learn it from scratch. Um, but we're helping her by, by um, providing, yeah. you know, the professional development and the support of a comms team to help guide her where she has questions. Likewise, Peter, who's running our STELLA program, which is the secondary school education program. It's his baby. He knows it inside out. He knows all of his his um, schools that he works with and the students' needs. He ought to be the one who's communicating about it because, you know, it's his thing. Mm. Um, so supporting those people and upskilling them, but also giving them those professional uh, people who are able to guide them and uh, just help them tweak it along the way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's one of the big changes that's coming is this notion of distributing capability to the edges, much closer to the people to that authentic engagement because that's where we are now and, and the speed of the world and being able, as you say, to be able to, um, you know, produce and distribute that, you know, content that they know, it's got much, much greater richness and resonance than it would have if it goes, hang on, it's got to go back through the... You know, back through the centre, for example, rather than you know to be immediately available to yep. to that audience. Absolutely, and and you know with the the authenticity, there's also the the concept of inclusivity and making room. And um, for me, that means telling the stories of the people who our work affects, as yeah. well as telling the stories of our work. Um, so I want to see students up on our school education social media feeds. I want to see um, mentees and mentors up on our uh, mentoring program feeds. I want to see um, fellows and 
and um, and their staff and their work celebrated on our channels as well because those stories and, and the stories of the people that their work affects, they're, they're the things that people connect with. That authenticity is really important. Mm. Um, but it's also it, it, it's about using the privilege that you have when you do have an audience um, to, for me, it's always been about using that privilege to open the doors, to to invite others in who may not have that privilege themselves and to support them to thrive in that environment rather than just throwing them to the wolves because they can be wolves. <laughs> and, you know, particularly when you're talking about things like immunisation, you're talking about oh, yeah. things like climate change, they are still, unfortunately, very yeah. controversial topics yeah. and individuals can be overexposed and they can they can come up against some pretty nasty stuff um, out there on in, you know, the World Wide Web. So, um, so being able to to include people, help them to tell their stories, display their passion, open the door to their world, but do it in a way that uh, where they're supported and safe. So, would you you agree that communications, the the function and the importance of it is maturing, and there's the, a greater understanding, particularly with leaders such as yourself. You know that this is. It's always been important, but perhaps it's even more important now because of that level of connectivity and the audiences are out there. And comms, rather than being a sort of that end of the line function, you know, make it look pretty as it goes out the door, that it's much closer to the, to the origination of the discussion around how do we communicate around our policies and programs? I would love to agree with you wholeheartedly. I think we've got a way to go there. Yeah. I think we are moving in that right direction. Yeah. Um you know, I come from a communications background, so yeah. for me, I, I understand how it can support, enable and amplify the work that you're doing absolutely int- intrinsically and, and it's built into our plans from day one on everything we do. Yeah. I don't think that's necessarily the case everywhere, though. Okay. I have seen some transformation, though. Um, one of the one of the brilliant transformations I've seen has been at CSIRO. CSIRO comms used to be about um, a little bit of sort of say no and command and control kind of approach. This is many years ago, not under the current regime. Um, There used to be definitely an air of, um, well, we're going to control who can talk and when they can speak and what they say um, and they have to come back and have everything signed off in triplicate before they open their mouths or, you know, pick up their keyboards. Hmm. there has been a complete turnaround at CSIRO in the last few years and I think it's credit to Larry Marshall who has um, very much prioritised it and it's back to what you say about coming from leadership mm. um, whereby the individuals who are working at that extraordinary agency, that absolute goldmine for our nation, those individuals are being supported to tell their stories publicly and they're being celebrated for doing that. Mm. They're being rewarded for doing that and they're being enabled to do it properly and, and professionally and um, and to grow their skills as they do. Now, that has been amazing to watch. And then it's then they started to get more confident about how they're communicating mm. and, and promoting their image online um, and on social media as well. Then you can start to have a bit of fun with it. Mm. And I I don't know if you've been watching the CSIRO Twitter feed, but it has it has changed completely over the last few years. It's gone from something that's very dry, very kind of uh, bureaucratic, organisational, to being full of personality and a bit of cheek, yeah. you know, and, and hitting some of those, uh, like putting up cute animal pigs and, and those <laughs> things get shared all over the place. Um, bringing in Li Lin Chin to talk about, um, you know, why she thinks scientists are sexy. You know, stuff like <laughs> yeah. having fun with it. Yeah. And it shows and yeah. it grows because of that. Indeed. But just to, before you do go, um, where, where's – so that's a great example of, of the positive, but you said that in your experience at the moment there's still that reluctance, there's still that – 
perhaps is it fear? Uh, I don't know what it is. What is it, in your view, that's stopping it? And what do we need to do to get through the door, you know, to really get people to understand? Because I'd, I would have thought that, you know, even the reality of people's lives, they would have to be observing that, you know, every, you know it's, all, it's different now. It's changed, you know, the way we, you know, send, receive information. It's all different. So what, where's the resistance and, and, and how do we get on top of it? I think we're all digital natives now. So, yeah, it's something we're just going to have to get used to. Um, I, I think that there's that classic uh, and, and I think erroneous um, risk management lens on communications, which is the main hindrance. Yep. And if you uh, – you'll often sort of hear about uh, the, the lawyers being in one corner and the PR people being in the other corner and, you yep. know, their, their imperatives are almost at opposite ends of the same spectrum. But um, – but, a fear about reputation and reputational risk management is, I think, the primary thing that holds organisations back from effective communications. There's a, a desire to control the way that their staff and their stakeholders behave online. It is impossible to do. So my advice would be stop trying to control it. It's never going to happen. Only only ever ends in frustration and it will kill the life. It'll strangle the life out of your comms um, and people aren't going to respond to it because they'll see that that's happening or they'll feel that that's happening even if they don't understand it consciously. But at the other end, you can't kind of totally unfetter every single person that works for you because that's not desirable either. That's kind of going to the, the wrong extreme as well. So what do you do? You empower them and you teach them and you show them how to do it well and you reward them for doing it well and you give them guidelines to work within that are not so restrictive that their personalities are squashed. Um, you give them templates. You show them how to, you, you point them to examples of where it's working. Um, teach them. Teach them to be your communicators. Teach them to be your champions reward them when they do it well. Kylie Walker, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. That is just a masterclass, really, I think, of advice and wisdom that people can draw along, uh, draw down from. One of the, basically, the podcast is all about people learning and they can take away so much of what you said today, take it into their lives, communicating with influence, you know, empowering. I think this education piece, this is really going to be massive in this part of the um, public sector and government sector. And uh, just if we can get more people telling the great stories, because really 99.9% .9 of what government does is great. And there are so many stories that are locked up in these organisations at the moment. And we haven't given people permission to think about it, that this is a great story. And I, I could go on, and I'm sure we could all go on with lots and lots of examples of great stories that never get told because people don't feel that they've got the permission or the skills to get after it. But we're going to change that by getting people to listen to this podcast. Thanks for coming in. Um, to you, the audience, once again, thanks so much for coming back. Now, some super exciting news. Govcoms, sit down, wait for this one, guys. GovComs is partnering with the OECD to bring you the inaugural GovComs Festival. That's right. In November, the dates, I think the 17th and 18th of November, uh, we are going to have a GovComs Festival. So we are going to bring government communicators from all over the world to share us their stories. And it's not just about covid specifically as such but that's it's called government aftershock is 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 the bigger um uh, event that we are participating in and, and and the OECD is looking at all sorts of things that have changed during this remarkable and incredible period that we are are living through at the moment so we're we're bringing this massive community together to 
talk about communications and to have exactly the type of conversation that we've just had with Kylie, but to share our experiences. And it's not just in Australia, it will be with people from around the world. And I'm certainly excited to let you know as well that Griffith University will be providing a huge amount of education. So if you do get involved, there will be fantastic education from the Griffith University University Social Marketing School as well. Now, we don't have the websites and all the other bits and pieces sorted out at the moment, but we will have that very soon. And we would be strongly encouraging you all to get involved in. And if you've got an idea, if you want to get involved, we also are going to be um, issuing expressions of interest so you can get involved as well as that. So that is so exciting for us um, to make that happen. And I know that uh, there'll be so much content and so much value uh, as we get each week uh, from great guests like we had from Kylie today. But anyway, more news into the future. Thanks very much for coming back once again, but I'll be back at the same time next week. But for the moment, it's bye for now. You've been listening to the GovComs podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to rate and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes.